could, and we're going to start. We just had the Mission Impossible theme, haven't we, uh, for Pete? We love that. Do you guys watch Mission Impossible? Anyone into it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the, the latest one. Great film, hey? If you can re recall how they start, I think they almost all of them start the same way. So you have the, the opening scene, something tense to, to grab your interest. Uh, and just, just then, it cuts away. We have the opening credits. Uh, and then, if you're watching carefully, there's, the, there's, there's flashes of the whole movie. And that's what they're doing. They're giving you a taste or a teaser of the movie to come in the hope that you'll stay and watch the movie with some interest. Daniel chapters 11 and 12 are the movie to the, the, to the, 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 the snippets shown in 7 and 8. And so that's where we're going. If you want to locate chapters 11 and 12, they connect to 7 and 8. It's the fleshing out and development of it. We're going to see the story. So if you like, if you can uh, cast your mind back, you've had the teasers in 7 and 8. You think, you know, I can't even remember 7 and 8. <laughs> but you've had the teasers, and now we're going to get the movie. Okay, so let's start. And there's no Tom Cruise here. That's today, I'm afraid. Just a good old... Uh, Montas. Okay, uh, our heading. So there's one heading for uh, the chapter. It really covers what we encounter here. An overview of the past, present, and glorious future of God's people. An overview of the past, present, and glorious future of God's people. Let me start. So there's, there's a lot of verses to cover, hence why Jeff missed some of them out. Uh, Jeff, by the way, thank you. That was read lovely in a really English accent. If you're wondering why Jeff and I sound so different, I'm from the really rough area, and he's from the, from the really posh area. <laughs> okay? That, 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 is, that is true, actually. <laughs> there, there's some truth to that. Okay, so look, uh, rather than read all the verses, because there's a lot of verses, I'm going to put the verses for you to see where I'm attaching the explanation to, and I'll give mainly the explanation just because there's so many verses to read. So verse two, I will start with verse two. Now I tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he'll stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So look, in the 200 years or so that, that, the, that the Persians reigned, they were uh, approximately nine different kings. But four of them are in focus here, and the last one in particular, uh, some of you may have seen it in some Hollywood movie, the last king took on Greece. Does anyone know who he is? Yeah, uh, not quite him, but another one begin with the X. Xerxes, yes, yes, it's in the, it's one of the, there's two or three Hollywood movies made about it. So he got so big-headed, if you like, so full of himself, he took on Greece in the Battle of Salamis, 480 BC. But he got terribly, terribly beaten. So beyond that, verse 3 then, we're told, verse 3 and verse 4, we're now introduced to a new empire, the, uh, the Alexandrian or the Greek empire. He came to power 334 BC. If you can remember anything of chapter 7 and chapter 8, he's the hybrid beast of chapter 7. He, he was a leopard with wings. That's him. In chapter 8, he's the goat with a single horn. 
the powerful horn, the extended horn. That's Alexander the Great. He conquered vast empires, he had one empire, vast areas of the globe, but it didn't last long. What happened to him? He died at a very early age. Two, I think. 32. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But pretty close. What's 12 months between friends, eh? Well, 32 and a half. Yeah, that's why he says that. It is, because when you look at the dates, it looks like 33, but it's actually 32 and a half and five days and two hours. Okay? Right. So, so <laughs> yes, it did. Thank you very much. Okay. Hey, we won't have you back next week. So, beyond his death, the kingdom, the empire was divided. Amongst, not his family, there wasn't a dynasty here, but amongst his generals, four of them, and the guys didn't get on. And the two that the rest of Daniel, a lot of Daniel 11 is taken up with, is, is the two that General chapter 8 is taken up with. It's the northern kingdom, the Seleucids. That's the dynasty that lasted for about three centuries. And one of the generals that went south, the Egyptian dynasty, the Ptolemies. So the northern and the southern ones are the two that are in focus for the majority of the verses. So verses 5 and 6 there where the kingdom divided the Syrians in the north and the Egyptians in the south. Verse 7, we give, we're given a picture there of what this battle, this ongoing battle for 300 years looks like. Listen to this, verse 7. One from our family line will arise to take our place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. There will be victories and defeats, victories and defeats throughout. If you're interested, in Cleopatra was a Seleucid of the north of the Greek Empire. So the battle, that's what's going on, that's throughout the chapter, these battles between these two kingdoms. Uh, but in particular, verses 21 to 35, there's a Seleucid king who, who takes up a lot of ink in chapter 11, he did in chapter eight too. Can anyone remember we, who he was? A Seleucid king came to power in 175 BC, Yes, Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, well, Antiochus IV. He comes to power, and a lot of those verses, 21 to 35, talk about him. He's introduced to us in chapter 8, not very nicely there, but look how he's introduced in chapter 11. He will be succeeded by a wonderful guy. <laughs> no, listen to him. By a contemptible person. It's not a nice way. Look, I mean, look how wonderfully Lee introduced me. I mean, could you imagine how you felt, you know, or what I would have done to him if he'd introduced me? And here comes Montas, the contemptible person. Did you think about doing that? Don't. Okay. Hey, hey, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Okay. Don't underestimate the little guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not that I would take on Lee, he's probably a bit too big for me. So, look, he, he's introducing this one because this is truly a despicable character. And joking aside, he is a terrible, terrible king. In verses 25 to 28, we see how he starts. So he starts by attacking the south. It's, it just seemed like the pastime of northern and southerners was to fight with each other. So he attacks Egypt, and the first time around, he has some success, verses 25 to 28, a reasonable amount of success. So he musters up more energy and tries again. But this time, Egypt gets help from the Romans who are coming into 
prominence about now. They send their battleships, their naval ships. That's what verses 29 and 30 are talking about. And with their help, uh, Antiochus is pushed back, defeated, if you like. So what do you do? You're defeated, you're humiliated. Uh, the, 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 the big bad wolf down south has humiliated you but you're vent up with all this fury, you're ready for battle, you're all revved up and nowhere to go, so what would you do? Yeah, you could get another army, okay, but there's an easier way. Just go and pick on someone much smaller than you. Yes. And that's what happens. You see, throughout these 300 years, Israel, you've got, you've got the Syrian Seleucid uh, Empire up in the north. You've got the Egyptian, Ptolem- the Ptolemaic Emperor in the south, uh, Empire in the south. You've got Israel in between. Uh, how do you think these two nations got to one another to fight? Through Israel. And so Israel will pull up with this collateral damage if you like, throughout this entire period. And for the whole period, they were under occupation from either the northerns and all the southerners. And now finally, Antiochus, humiliated by the Egyptians, decides to pick on someone ten times smaller than him. The Israelites. And he does so with devastation and, and damage. We're told... That he came to power, we're told. Look, there's a lot of history on Antiochus. He came to power 175 BC, we said that. He wasn't due to be the king. He stole it from his nephew, who happened to be away in Rome, and so took the power upon himself, made himself to be a god. His, his, his name is Antiochus IV. He added to himself the name, the, the, the subname Epiphanes, because he meant. It means something like God manifest. He saw himself as a God. In fact, he even had coins. All the coins during his reigns had images that, that suggested he is God. His subjects, they say, a bit of history if you're interested, called him Epimenes. Can anybody know, have a guess what they may? He liked to call himself the Epiphanes, which meant God manifest, but his subject called him Epimenes because they thought he was Mad. And so that, he had, that was his nickname. No one ever used the one he preferred for himself. So he comes into power. He begins to launch an assault on the Jews shortly after his defeat to the Egyptians and Romans. He's 167 BC and he begins his reign of terror. I'll read these verses to you, 31 to 33. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Have a guess what that may be? A pig in the temple of God. He will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. What does that mean that the Jews are likely to do in that period of great difficulty? Yeah, stand their ground. Verse 33, those who rise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burnt or captured or plundered. What's this time going to look like? Starting with the altar of God. Uh, what's, the, what's the most indignant way you could respond to Jewish people? Is to put a pig. The most uh, uh, unclean creature. Well, I don't need the 
Okay, the most unclean creature on the most holy item in Jewish faith, the temple or the altar of sacrifice. He sacrifices a pig. And thus begins this, this undermining of Judaism. You can see what he's doing, can't you? He believes he is God, he's king, and he believes he's God. And therefore, he can take on any God he wants and show himself to be superior. That's what he's doing. He's mocking Israel's God. He's already failed with the Egyptians, so he's taken on the underdogs, and, and he's mocking the gods of the Jews, and thus begins a wave of persecution, which was ugly in the, in the most extreme sense. I'm going to read some history for you now. You know, look, there's about 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. We call it the intertestamental period. Okay, uh, lots of stuff's written there, and, and in some, some um, wings of Christendom, and I'm using Christendom liberally now, just generally not evangelical Christendom, but just Christendom, uh, some of these intertestamental books are within their Bibles. One and two Maccabees is in, some, is in the Catholic Bible, for example. Here's an extra from me. We don't believe it's canon, it's a part of God's word, but it's history written by Jews. And hey, listen to it, this is an excerpt from it. You can't see very well, can you? But let me read it to you. Okay, um, this is an example of that history. Now on the 15th day of Chislev in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege upon the altar of burnt offering. That's the pig. They also built altars in the surrounding cities of Judah and burnt incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets, foreign incense. The books of the law, the Bible, which they had found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. The burning of Bibles. Where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, tried to obey the Bible in any sense, the decree of the king condemned him to death. They kept using violence against Israel, against those found month after month in the cities. And on the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar, which was upon the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised. So look, if you're a Jew, you must on the eighth day circumcise your child. And they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families. And those who circumcised them, they hung their dead infants from the dead mother's necks. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food, profane the word of God. They chose to die rather than be defiled by food or profane the holy covenant, and they did die. And very great wrath came upon Israel. That's what Daniel 11 is describing in, in less graphical terminology. It was ugly, it was designed, it was purposeful, it was cruel. The purpose, why would Epiphanes do this? Antiochus, why would he do that? Yeah. It's this feeling of triumph, isn't it? Why do bullies bully people? Because it gives them a sense of superiority. And so this is fueling his, his, his need 
to believe that he is God and nothing and no one can stand against him. He's certainly trying to eradicate Judaism. He may, this may be an attempt of annihilation. Because this it resulted in many, many, many deaths. And it reminds you, friends, you know, when we think back about the, uh, the Holocaust and other episodes in Jewish history, there's nothing new under the sun. And had Antiochus succeeding in eradicating Judaism, well, you're going to see now who's behind all this. What would he meant for you? No Christ. No virgin birth. No Jewish community to be born into. And no Jewish people to, to promote the gospel. You see, so, so, so who is behind this? Satan. And now we're going to see that manifest. So, when we look at Antiochus, we have to think of him as someone who is an agent or a tool in the hand of something greater. And you see, one, Antiochus, in, hand, in attacking God's people, in attacking God, underestimated their resolve to withstand him because he hadn't realized or didn't believe that there was a real God behind the Jews. You see, if your faith wasn't real, it was just anchored in custom, culture and if your life is on the line and your life depending on you giving up that culture unless you're stupid you'd give it up wouldn't you but if you believed in the true and living God if your ancestors had seen him if you've got his law in your hands if you'd just returned from exile for, for profaning his name you're more likely to face death. I mean, let me choose, let me ask you: What would you prefer? Seventy years in exile, or, 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 or resist this emperor? You'd resist him, and that's something what um, Antiochus hadn't banked on. And starting with Judas, so Judas. So he's called the Maccabees, the book, or the Maccabean Revolt, because Judas, who was at the heart of it, well, actually his father was at the heart of it. His father was commanded by by uh, who were the North Greeks to, to, to sacrifice uh, pay to pagan gods on the altar of God. He refused and began a rebellion. He died soon after, but his son Judas took over, took over the rebellion. And they called him Judas Maccabee because it means hammer, because he was a brute of a man. I'm looking for one. We've got a couple here, haven't we? He, 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 he was a brute of a man. And so he led this renegade uprising and he met the force head on. He used like for like brutality. It was a violent resistance, guerrilla, guerrilla warfare. It's the only way you can take on a greater army is by doing guerrilla warfare. And many, many nations since have used it very, very effectively. It's, it, I mean, look, I'm not a military strategist here, but I think it works something like this. You're a small outfit, you hide in the jungles, you just sneak in and, and take out key, key elements and then hide again. Uh, I don't know what it's called, guerrilla warfare. I mean, is that guerrilla tactics? Is that what they do? They come out and go back in? For whatever reason, it's guerrilla warfare, but it succeeded, and it eventually pushed him out. It defeated Antiochus, pushed him back, and he eventually gave up. He eventually was killed. Verse 34 may be a picture of this. Listen to this. And, they, and when they fall, they will receive a little help. And, and his thought that that's speaking prophetically. Remember, Daniel is writing this when? I mean, we would have said this at the beginning. When's he writing this? 
Yeah, yeah, 6 B, 6, 600 BC. Okay, he's writing it. And when's this taking place? I've quoted a few numbers already. When's this taking place? Yeah, 167 to 164, the, the revolt, okay? Right. Can you see the precision of what, we're, what Daniel is writing? It's why many liberal scholars doubt Daniel, the vast majority of it was written when he was written because he's so detailed about the future. Detailed about the prophetic word. Daniel is writing with real precision about things that take place hundreds of years later. So they did push back Antiochus. The temple was restored, rebuilt. Sacrifices of clean animals were re-established. The Jewish way of life continued. And now the Jews celebrate that victory by the Maccabeans. They call it Hanukkah. That's what that celebration is. It's celebrating the victory over Antiochus. And remember I said earlier that ultimately it's the devil who's behind Antiochus. We saw that in chapter 10. Remember when Daniel was praying and we saw that these great empires were fighting one another? But who was fight? Who was doing the interstellar fighting or the galactical fighting? Do you remember? Yes, angels and demons. We're told in chapter 10 that there are demonic forces beyond what's happening in our world. That's a reality. And so here we're seeing it. So in this character, uh, Antiochus, we see devilish activity. And then when we read the closing chapters, the ones that uh, Jeff read for us, verses uh, 40 and to, to the end, 45, we have what's regarded by theologians perhaps the most complex verses in the whole of Daniel. Because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. He seems to be talking about Antiochus. Then he seems to be talking about some of the previous terrible rulers. Then he seems to be talking about uh, the future. What is it really talking about? Well, I think he's talking about all those things. And I think in the closing verses of chapter 11, what's going on is Antiochus is being presented as one example of devilish activity, focus, calculated devilish activity against God's people, Israel at the time. And then what it does in, in those final verses is, is mirror some other great opponents of God's people. Some of the other warfares they've had. Perhaps even reflecting on the likes of, of uh, Xerxes, uh, uh, Haman. Remember what Haman tried to do to God's people? Uh, and, then, and at the same time, so I think he's putting up Antiochus as this figure who wages ultimate war against God's people. But within those verses, there's reflections of other kings who've waged ultimate warfare against God's people. And also, simultaneously, I think what those verses are doing is prophetically speaking about other great opponents of God's people and ultimately one final Antiochus Epiphanes. Who is he? The New Testament speaks about him. One final Antiochus who will wage one final war against God's people, bringing in the end. Who is he? What's the name of him? Antichrist. Nero was another type of him, but the ultimate and final enemy of God's people will be the Antichrist. And I think that's where these verses are going. In verse 45, we're told that he'll pitch his royal tent between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. So he's attacking God's people. Yet he will, 
yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Antiochus was defeated and every one of these every one of these other great enemies of God's people were defeated. The final one, the final one, will be this man, this Antichrist, who will stand against God's people. He's called the Antichrist. What do you think? So what did God the Father do in coming to earth? It was his, what do we, who do we say Jesus is? He's the manifestation of God. He's God in the flesh. God appeared to his people through many times in history and revealed his arm. He worked through people and then finally came to the planet. So the devil has been working and hijacking individuals, especially great rulers, and he's been attacking God's people over and over again. Now he sees and witnesses God's manifestation on earth. What do you think the devil finally does? What's his ace up the sleeve? It is, it's, it, it, well, it's to do the same, is what I'm thinking. So, so God manifests himself in the flesh and comes in this ultimate revelation of himself. And depends how you read the New Testament, it seems that the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is a character. I think I've got a verse up there somewhere soon. Is it the next one? Um, uh, okay, it's a bit later. Would you just go forward again one more time? We can go backwards in a minute. And the next slide, please. Oh, okay. Oh, we've missed it. Okay, it's just 1 Thessalonians. It talks about, what are going to turn to it? It talks about, um, oh, it's up there now, is it? Can you read it? There it is. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, the end of the time, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, Antiochus, revisited is revealed, that the man of doom for destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Can you see, when you read about Antiochus and when you read in the New Testament about the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, you realise, that Antiochus is just a revelation of this ultimate manifestation of the devil. So just as Jesus was a manifestation of God, God in the flesh, so the Antichrist, if you believe there is such a thing, is a manifestation of the devil. And when he comes, just like Antiochus who turned on God's people, so he will turn on the church of Christ. Many at that time will have their faith tested. Many will fall away. But many, like the Jews, will continue to sacrifice on the altar of God. Tell me, how does a Christian sacrifice on the altar of God? Because we are doing it. The sacrificial system may have been abolished physically, but it's continuing spiritually. How are we, according to Romans 12, sacrificing on the temple of God, on the altar of God? Yeah, that's one expression. Can anyone think of the words for Romans 12? Therefore, brothers, uh, I, I beseech you by the mercies of God to offer your lives as living sacrifices on the altar of God's temple. You're doing it right now. But there will come a challenge, just like the Jews, when you will choose and I will choose if we're still alive, when it's to be either God, or sorry, either be life or death. Either God and death or life and rejection. A time may come, friends, when we will experience that persecution, 
that Antiochus wielded against God's people. And we may, we don't know what it look like, we may choose between life and death, depending on whether or not we choose to leave our homes and to drive across whatever streets we go through and to gather in a place like this to worship, knowing that it may mean the end of our existence. Let me ask you a question. Would you have come here this morning to offer your lives as living sacrifices if you knew there was a 90% chance that you were going to be assassinated? I hope so. I hope so. Because that's what the Jews faced. And the reason those images are there, the reason Daniel is in the canon, is because Antiochus is picturing where this is all going. So here's the point. So he's writing to the Jews. They've just returned from exile. His message to them is what we've been saying all along. Look, guys, your future has lots and lots of blips. And look, uh, the exile, what was the exile about? It was because of Israel's disobedience. It was an act of discipline from the Lord. So sometimes believers suffer as an act of discipline, we said that from, since it's in, uh, what's the book, Hebrews uh, 11, is it 11 or 12? Uh, when, when he says, uh, uh, God disciplines those he loves. Okay, but Antiochus' reign and the devastation that that caused, there's no link in any way in scripture to suggest it was an act of discipline. God just allowed it. And I think what he's saying to the Jewish uh, exiles, the return is, look, your future is one of uncertainty. Ups and downs, reigns of good kings and bad kings and great suffering. Your faith will be tested. But it's not always to God's discipline. Sometimes we just suffer just because it's God's providence for us. And he's preparing them He's warning them. But he's also telling them, as severe as it gets, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Look, if you've got any, any notion of making Australia great, a wonderful place to raise your children, you're going against the Bible, Christian. The world is not getting better and better and better. It's spiraling downwards. Antiochus is there'll be many more of them until there's a final one. And I think what God is saying to his church now, so he's saying to the Jews, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, but he'll be dealt with. And he's saying to the church, two thousand, two and a half thousand years on now, that our future and our existence is mixed. There'll be great times and there'll be low times. There'll be times when we get caught up in collateral damage. There'll be times when the state is persecuting us. There's times when the government is persecuting us. Our friends are persecuting us. But there'll be other times of relief. But there'll be a slow spiraling downwards, downwards, downwards until there's one final manifestation of the devil. We don't know who it will be or what it'll look like. But it'll be the worst time in the history of the world for God's people. But says, if we persevere through that then Jesus returns puts an end to the devil here it's in 1 Thessalonians if you move forward please for me Meg 1 Thessalonians 4 16 we're told there for the Lord himself will come down from heaven he will come so I don't know what your theology is but here's as I see it Armageddon is the final battle when the devil will come to our world 
as the Antichrist and set himself up against the church. But we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the Lord himself will come down and rescue his people, apprehend the devil. In Revelation 20 verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Antiochus, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will finally and ultimately be apprehended. Our future is spiraling downwards, okay? But the, the, the enemy, the arch enemy of God's people, will ultimately be apprehended, captured, doomed, and cast into hell. And in his, in his absence, in his absence, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, um, 4 verse 17 so will be with the Lord forever. Yes, things are getting worse and they will get worse. Australia is not going to be a wonderful place forever. But Jesus will return. Apprehend Antiochus or the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, and establish. Someone tell me, what will he establish? Why is all this worth it? The kingdom of God, the new earth, the home of righteousness. I think I've got a verse there. Uh, I should have done. Um, I think I might have cut it out. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Christian, it's worth it because there's a new kingdom coming when there'll be no more fighting and battles and Antiochuses or any other enemy. And so God's word to us is this. First of all, you will have trouble. We've said this before, John 16, 33. In this world, you'll have trouble. But Matthew 28, I'm with you. Always to the very end of the age. I don't know what your life is like just now. But whatever it's like today, it may not be like that next week. And we may not be in trouble now, but there may be trouble ahead. We may be in trouble now. There may be grace ahead. Jesus says it will be like that. We're not promising you in this church. This is not a, have you noticed? This is not a motivational talk. Okay? We don't do that here. We just preach the Bible. And the truth of this is, in this world, you will have trouble. If that motivates you to seek another church, then maybe you don't belong here. In this world, you will have trouble, says Jesus. But take heart. He's overcome the world, and he promises surely to be with us, and he asks of us, and I ask this of you, and I ask it of myself. And I, know, I know nothing about what it will look like if it happens, when it happens, but this is what he says to us in Revelation 2 as he writes to the churches. This is a word to the church in the future. Be faithful to your faith, even to the point of death. And I'll give you the crown of life. And you know what he asked there of us? You know the only generation he's asked it of? Because he asked it of all those Jews. And many of them. You can read about it in, in the book of Maccabees. You can read about it in other history books. Many, many, many of them stood and faced death. For God. 
And you can talk and read about the early disciples after the first 300 years. They were burnt as torches and thrown to lions. And they stood for God. And then God is saying to us, will you, when tested, remain faithful to me? Listen to this. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Genuine faith. Look, if you, I don't know how you're sitting there feeling, thinking, I don't think I could stand up to that. I don't think I could. But he gives grace. He gives grace. And where there's genuine faith at work in our hearts, we receive the grace to say no to Satan and yes to Jesus. And in one way, friends, what we have now is preparation for that. Every time you say no to, de- to the devil... No to sin, no to self-indulgence, no to feeding your own frenzy and say yes to Jesus. You're mustering energy, you're training yourself for that day. Do you see? Which means, therefore, if I never say no to Satan today, if I give in every time I'm tempted to have that donut with cream in it from Mambarka, I'm giving that away today to the highest bidder, okay? (laughs) If I don't say no now, I'll have very little chance of saying no when the big tests come. Train yourself now to say no to ungodliness. To stand up for Jesus now. And perhaps by God's grace when we're in that moment, if we're ever in that moment, and we may well be in that moment together, then we will stand for Jesus to the point of death. And says Jesus, we will inherit the crown of eternal life. So the message of Daniel is, hey, it'll be tough, but it's a glorious, glorious rescue at the end. Jesus flies over, lowers the winch, collects us from the despair, and takes us to be with him forever, to live on paradise earth, with him, with one another, you prepared to die